God, we thank you that your words are words of power through the work of your Holy Spirit, and they will never fail. And we do ask that even now you will increase our faith and that our faith would be greater than our unbelief. Help us to hear and receive and obey your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, during this Lenten season, we are sticking with our epistle reading from the book of Romans. Paul's writing to the Romans. We're looking at some of the great truths in the book of Romans. And today we're going to look at a truth that if we believe this, what Paul is teaching here will eliminate pride, will eliminate boasting, and will generate humility in our life. I've got a story about boasting. A man met a beautiful woman at a dinner party. She's stunningly beautiful and he thinks, well, I cannot let this woman get away without making some sort of impression on her. And he comes from a very wealthy family and he begins to brag. He begins to boast about his family's wealth. And he says, you know, my father is very wealthy and uh, he's in poor health and he's probably not going to last more than two years. When he dies, I'm going to be worth at least $50 million. The woman is impressed. She asks for his contact information. A few weeks later, he gets a card from this woman. I enjoyed meeting you at the party. It was a fine party. I look forward to getting to know you better. better. Love your new stepmother. Boasting can backfire. (laughs) Boasting is a symptom of what? Pride. Calling attention to ourselves. Relying on ourselves. And this kind of pride can infect every part of our lives, including our spiritual life. And that's what Paul is writing against in this section in Romans, Romans 3 and 4. He is writing against spiritual boasting and spiritual pride. In fact, he says in Romans 3 that if you understand what he's teaching here, Romans 3.27, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. It's eliminated if you understand what he's teaching. Here's the teaching. So, we're going to look at this passage. We're going to look at the teaching. Then we're going to just talk about how it applies to our life. The apostle teaches that a person is justified, accepted in the eyes of God, by grace, through faith. That's the great teaching. Justification is a judicial term. Think of standing in a courtroom before a judge. And Paul says... That all of us, when we stand before God, because none of us have fulfilled the law perfectly, we've all sinned, we all fall short, when we stand before God the judge, and we all will, according to the teaching of Bible, of the Bible, in ourselves we're guilty because of our sin. But the good news is that God counts us righteous, He justifies us, He accept us, accepts us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, justified by grace, through faith, 
not based on what we do. If you believe this, then there's no room for spiritual pride or boasting. Rather, what happens in our life is humility and gratitude for God's salvation. So that's the teaching. And then in in Romans chapter 4, he gives an example to prove his point. And really, it's not just any example. It is the example. It's the example of Abraham, who is the father of faith, the father of the Jewish faith. And really, in order to make a convincing argument as a Jew, Paul's got to go back to Abraham and and say, let me show you how this works in our father, our spiritual father. And the key verse is verse 4. So Romans 4. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 3. So, Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He took God at His word. He believed in the promises of God, and when he did that, God looked upon him as a righteous man. You might remember the scene. This is a quote from Genesis 15. Paul's quoting directly from Genesis 15, verse 6. But you remember what was going on there. God takes Abraham out at night. And he says, Abraham, I want you to try to count the stars. Start counting the stars, Abraham, and that's how many descendants you are going to have. As numerous as the stars. Now, Abraham was a very old man at this time. We've already learned in Genesis that he, when he set out, he was 75. He was older than that at this time. In fact, Paul says later on that he was as good as dead when this promise came to him. That's pretty old. So this seems like an impossible promise. He's childless. He has no heir. And he's old. And yet, Abraham believed that God could do the impossible. And it was credited to him as righteous. Just kind of incidentally, how many of you have learned in your life that it is through the crises of life, when things look impossible, that God calls us to believe His promises? And He often meets us there in the midst of the crisis and the difficulty and the suffering. An old preacher called it God's grammar. Listen to this. Where we often put a period, God puts a comma. And oftentimes we put a comma where God puts a period. God's grammar. Nothing is impossible with God. So Abraham believed this impossible promise and God counted him as righteous. And the the point is this, that God declared Abraham righteous, listen, before Abraham performed a good work. And Paul, the interesting thing here that I learned this week in my study of this passage is that Paul is not arguing against the straw man. There is a whole Jewish tradition, expository writing, related to when was Abraham counted as righteous. And, and the, the, a large stream of that tradition believed that Abraham was righteous when he performed a good work. When he was circumcised, he was counted as righteous. When he passed the great test of his faith, Offering to sacrifice his son Isaac, 
then he was righteous. That's in chapter 22. The circumcision is chapter 17 of Genesis. The, 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 the willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac is chapter 22. But Paul says, let's go back to the beginning covenant here. Let's go back to 15, chapter 15. And before he had done those things, all he did was believe. And he was counted as righteous. And then his obedience, circumcision, willingness to sacrifice his son, is the evidence of his faith. The, the obedience flows from faith. And so there is this whole tradition, really, that, that, that Paul is going against here. You can read some of that in the apocryphal books of Maccabee and, uh, and, and Syrac. Uh, in the uh, apocryphal books, the books that were written between the, 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 new te- the two testaments, the New Testament and the Old Testament. So, Paul says, even Abraham, great Abraham, our hero, has no boast. At least not before God. Even Abraham can't boast. Our righteousness, our good works, does not earn God's justification. And then, in fact, Paul drives this point home even further when he says in, 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 in verse 5, that God justifies, did you catch that? God justifies the ungodly. He counts as righteous the unrighteous. And we're going to get back to that in a second. But this, this idea that God justifies us just based on our trust, our faith, that we're accepted by Him based on that really overturns so much of how we have been taught. Because we have been taught from the earliest age that we are accepted based on what we do. We're rewarded based on our performance. In my, my children's elementary school, the, the teachers use this system to try to keep control of the kids. And I'm for using any system to keep control of kids. I mean, we try everything in our house, so I'm not begrudging them at all. Anything they can do. <laughs> but maybe some of you who've been teachers know about this, the clip-up system. The clip-up system, as best as I can understand, and Grace can correct me if I'm wrong here, but what happens is the teacher has a card with student's name on it, and the card is attached to, to a board, and at the beginning of the semester, all students are sort of in the middle of the board, their name tag there, okay? And um, so everybody starts in the same place at the beginning of the year, but then the year starts, okay? And then if, if, if for bad behavior, you clip down. For good behavior, you clip up. And so people are constantly, constantly moving based on how well they do. And then there are rewards or punishment based on where they're at in this, this system. And I think many of us think of our relationship with God like that. Now, that, that's an effective management tool, I guess, in the school system. But the problem is we transfer this idea. We're accepted based on what we do. It's performance-based. We transfer that into our relationship with God. God accepts me based on what I do. So many people think that. And what that leads to are two things. It can lead to pride or it can lead to despair. Can it? Pride. Well, really, I'm not all that bad compared to other people. Compared to especially the really bad people like murderers, adulterers, drug dealers. They're at the bottom of the chart. At least I'm in the upper middle range. I've cooked up enough. I've done enough good things. If you fall into that category, that means that you're boasting. And Paul says you can't boast. Not before God. No one's perfectly righteous. Or sometimes we look at our spiritual accomplishments or maybe even our spiritual experience or maybe we even think, I have achieved spiritual humility. (laughs) I have thoroughly repented. 
And then once again, what are you doing? You're looking at yourself. Faith looks away from the self to Christ alone. We talked about this in Sunday school today. It's not so much the quantity of our faith, it's the object of our faith that saves us. When we're united with Christ and what He's done for us, then we're saved. We're justified. So there's pride, and then other people can fall into despair. After all that I've done, God can't possibly accept me. I've clipped down too many times. I'm at the bottom of the chart. I've sinned too greatly. I haven't done enough things. Maybe if you're here this morning and and that's where you're at, you have to remember what Paul teaches here, that God justifies the ungodly. He delights in showing mercy to people who don't deserve it and changing their hearts and lives. God justifies the unrighteous not by overlooking unrighteousness. This is important. This is very important. God is holy. God is just. He doesn't overlook the sin. But it was at the cost of his own son's blood that he freely pays for our sin so that now we can live for him. God accepts us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the great message that we, we, we heard in the gospel reading, isn't it? That famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him trust in Him, puts their faith in Him, will have eternal life. Will not perish, but have eternal life. This is the consistent message of the New Testament. This is what makes Christianity so different from other religions. And I know, friends, that we have said this again and again. This is old truth, but it's good truth that we need to be reminded of, and we need to remind one another of, we need to remind ourselves of. We teach this to our children to our grandchildren, saved based on God's grace through faith in Him. Some people might say, well, Ben, where does obedience fall into this? (laughs) Aren't we called to obey God? Yes, we're called to obey God. Obedience is an act of faith. We see that in the life of Abraham. We obey because we love Christ. We obey because of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in us compels us to obey Christ. And Paul will talk about that later on in Romans, that we are to live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. But, but there's something here about this idea that if, the more we understand the grace and goodness and beauty of Jesus Christ, the more we'll want to obey Him. And so that's why we're called to develop this, this relationship with Him and meditate on who He is and what He's done for us. Listen to this. This is from John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. I love this, what he says here. Our pleasures and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Let me say that again. Our pleasures and our duty. So, we know the right thing, the duty we should do, but we really don't delight in the things that we should do. Our pleasures and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen Christ's beauty, are joined apart no more. Because we want to please God because of what Christ has done. And we're serving a beautiful Savior. Isn't that good? Isn't that helpful? 
Some people might think, you know, again, this comes up when you talk about justification, justification by faith. What about works? What about James? He says that faith without works is dead. And I think we have to make a distinction. Paul is talking about a works righteousness that seeks to earn salvation. James is talking about a works uh, that is evidence or proof of salvation. What he's trying to counter is the idea that somebody can just say, I'm saved, I believe, but then their life reflects nothing of it. There's no fruit in their life. The reformers said that we're justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. There's evidence of a changed life and a changed heart. So this theology is, is sound. We're justified by grace through faith in Christ. This is not a work lest anyone should boast. This is very good news, and it's news that we need to believe and share with others. Let me just close with this story. A Christian writer and pastor, Lewis Smeeds, tells about a time when he experienced what he called a mini-hell. This was a season of deep, dark anxiety and depression in his life. I don't know if any of you have tasted some of this or gone through some of this. I, I have actually gone through a period of anxiety and, 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 and not clinical depression. But I can understand what he's, he's talking about. But he called it his mini-hell, a time where he went through depression, even despair, And God met him. And listen to what he says. He's a good writer. When I flopped into nothingness, I fell into God. I was in the hands of God. I knelt in front of the mousy blue sofa in the living room to thank God for holding me up. I thanked him that with him I didn't need to be good enough. I could survive without other people patting me on the shoulder. If no one ever told me I was one of the gang... I could survive. Why? Because God was holding me. By His grace, my faith, I felt the living God. You see, friends, it's more than just a great truth to believe. It's a truth that God wants us to experience at the deepest level of our being, in our heart. I accept you. I love you. I've given my son's life for you to make you right in my eyes so that we can share eternal life together. What a great truth to build our life upon. Amen. Let's pray. Maybe there's somebody here even today, this morning, who has thought that the way that God accepts you is based on what you do, I want you to consider what you've heard, the teaching of the Apostle, the teaching of the New Testament. You're saved based on what God has done for you. And you have to humble yourself and receive that, and that is a work of God in your life. Maybe God is calling you even now to come to Him. And put your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If, that, that, if that's you this morning, you can say a prayer just like this in the, in the quiet of your own heart. God, I believe I need what you have done for me in Jesus Christ. As best as I now know, I put my faith and trust in his death and resurrection to pay for my sin. I ask that you would forgive me and fill me with the Holy Spirit.
so that I can live a new life. Lord, I pray that all of us would renew our faith in what you have done for us and live with joy and confidence in your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.